One of the exciting things about being part of a new church is that there's new things happening, new developments, progress, kind of some of it quite mundane. You probably don't realize that behind the scenes there's a lot of things that are going on. This week we had a delivery. We've taken quite a while to get the order in and and to be able to pay for the order and, and receive something that the creche has been desperate for. And that is a set of dividers. Not a dividing wall of hostility or anything like that, but to, to protect the little ones from the slightly bigger ones so they don't get trampled on a weekly basis. Well, uh, we, we got the delivery, or I should say the delivery was made this Friday of the, uh, the nice little train separators to a factory in Cambridge. And we got a whole load of column protectors, which was nice. Uh, so if you want to drive past our house, you'll see this huge pallet full of yellow barrel-looking things. We could protect these columns, but I don't think they need it. Uh, so we're going to get that sorted and get that by next week. It's just a little thing. Actually, they're a huge thing, but it's just a little thing. But it's, it's a, just another step forward. And, and as we move forward as a church, there's, there's lots of little things coming together, lots of things happening. But the, the cool thing is that it's not about plastic dividers or PA systems or anything like that. It, it's about people, isn't it? And I really appreciate that. With all the different ministries and things that are happening here, life groups and kids' church and creche and um, uh, open house, different things, 321, all the different ministries of the church, I appreciate that everyone who's involved in them gets that this is about God and this is about people. This is not about stuff and budgets and, and details. And as we move forward, things grow, numbers increase, and we have to buy dividers to protect little ones from slightly bigger ones. And, and I, I suppose we can't help but let our minds and our hearts dream a little bit. Because it is exciting, isn't it, to be part of a bigger crowd. It's exciting to have 40 people in here instead of 20 people in here. It's exciting to do crash, so I hear, with more than about 10 or 12. Once it gets beyond that, it gets a little bit frightening. What if there's 25 kids that need crash? What if there's 30 that want to come to kids' church? What if we need to fit 300 in here? I don't know. Not sure quite what we're going to do, but it's an exciting thought, isn't it? Why? Because we love the thought of more and more people coming together to worship God because God is so worthy of worship. Something special, isn't there, about being in a group of people that are are captivated by God's love and and, and just responding to him in praise. We're still learning, I think, how to feel comfortable in the the praise times here. And that's okay. We all come from different backgrounds and just learning that it's okay to lift a hand and it's okay not to and no one's judging and no one's watching. and, and, And we're learning, but there's something really special about being part of a crowd of people who are worshiping God. And the passage we're going to look at today is a passage that is about worship, and it's about rejection. You might think, hang on, how do those two go together? Well, it's about worship, and it's about rejection. And we're going to see that actually those two don't go together the way we might anticipate once we know what the story is. But actually, there's a bit of a twist here that we may not anticipate. So let's turn to Mark chapter 11. If you have, uh, grab one of the, the Bibles on the table. I think it's page 84 something, 846, 847, somewhere in there. Mark chapter 11. And we're in this series called A Different Kind of King. We're looking at Mark's presentation of Jesus. And uh, the, the story so far, the first 10 chapters, has been all about Jesus's life and ministry. Basically, those three years where he was doing miracles and teaching and, and all the stuff that was going on. But the whole point through all of that was to get to Jerusalem. 
So for the past few weeks, we've heard almost week after week, I'm going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of uh, so-and-so and they will do such and such and this will happen, he'll die and he'll rise again. Well, here we are, we're arriving at Jerusalem. This is the key moment. This is, in a way, the pivot of the entire book because having done the whole of the three years ministry, now Jesus is arriving at Jerusalem. The story that we've skipped at the end of chapter 10 is a story of a chap called Bartimaeus. He was a blind man and he heard Jesus was coming and and he called out and Jesus healed him. And then once he could see, Jesus said, okay, off you go now. And instead he followed Jesus. He just pursued him. It's like he's sort of the epitome of a true worshiper. He sees Jesus clearly and then he goes after him. And so Jesus with his entourage, including Bartimaeus, arrive at Jerusalem And we get the so-called triumphal entry. Let's read it. Uh, Mark 11, starting from verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus enters Jerusalem. If you've ever been to church on Palm Sunday, you'll have heard that story. You might be thinking, hang on, today's not Palm Sunday. Aren't we getting a bit ahead of ourselves? Well, we want to have time for the rest of Mark's gospel. And it's quite hard to squeeze uh, a week's worth of information into that, uh, into a week where there's no Sundays, if you see what I mean. Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. So we're just going with the text here. Jesus arrived Palm Sunday, as we tend to think of it. And it's quite a simple story, really. He sends some people ahead to prepare the way to get a a colt. It's like a a donkey that's not been ridden on. Uh, I suppose you could say a pure donkey. A donkey untainted by work. It's hard to think, isn't it? Pure donkey. But a donkey untainted by work. A donkey fit for a king. Hang on, a donkey fit for a king? How does that work? Well, anyway, Jesus gets on the donkey and he rides. Uh, you come around uh, from Bethany, around past Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. It's just a couple of miles and then across the Kidron Valley and into the, uh, into the temple courts, if you like, across the, the, the other side of the valley. And Jesus is doing this walk and he's doing it on a donkey. And the crowds are getting excited. They're shouting and they're quoting from an Old Testament hymn that they sang every Passover. This was a a festival. There's lots of people gathering in Jerusalem, and they're singing one of the big hymns, one of the big anthems of the week. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're celebrating, and they're crying out, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us now. Save us now. Deliver us. We're, We're asking you. We're entreating you. And Jesus, on his donkey, is walking through this great crowd, and the 
branches and the, the sort of the red carpet that they create in the moment. It's an exciting moment, isn't it? And here comes Jesus. And, and yet this is a different kind of king. Hence the donkey for a start. I don't know if you've ever stood in a crowd when there's been a mounted police officer. You know, the horse and this police officer just sitting way up above you. It's intimidating. Right? You don't really want to be uh, too close to, to that monster of, a, of an animal, even though they're so well trained, no offense to the police. But, I mean, they're big and they're scary. And you imagine a king on the biggest of horses. It's intimidating and it's powerful. And Jesus comes just clip-clopping in on a donkey. That doesn't really lift you up. <laughs> Donkeys are tiny. So here's this crowd and they're all celebrating. And in the midst, at eye level, is Jesus. And I love that. That's so typical of Jesus, isn't it? To come right to where we are and to be on our level with us. He's a humble king. He's a different kind of king. And this crowd is excited and they're celebrating and they're praising. It's worship. It's going beyond just the hype of the moment. It's worship. The way they're talking, the things they're saying, this is worship. And and yet you've probably heard the story that five days later... It all changes. You go from Palm Sunday right the way through to Good Friday. Good Friday morning, what happens? Well, Pilate, Pontius Pilate comes out in his dressing gown, looks out, and he sees this crowd of Jews. And they're all shouting, crucify him, crucify him. What's happened? How is it possible to go from worship to rejection like that? What, what happened in the intervening days that turned the people so that they became so antagonistic to Jesus? We've preached about it. We've sung about it over the years. We've made a big deal out of it in the church. And I just want to gently, graciously say that's completely wrong. Nothing changed. It was not the same group of people. You see, here's how it works. On, on Good Friday mornings, first thing, just as the sun is rising, uh, Pilate comes out and notices, as you would, a crowd of three or 400 people on his doorstep. We know the building. We know where it was. We know the size of the courtyard. This was not the same group of people. This was a, a rabble-roused group that were brought together, people from the temple, people who were kind of the, the workers. They were told, Oi, before you start your shift, there's something to do. Go to the palace. Get, get there. What are we doing? I need to be. No, you don't. Get in there. We need to get Jesus crucified. Oh, okay. And this crowd that showed up in front of Pilate, they they had no interest in Jesus whatsoever. The crowd that were welcoming him when he arrived, they were still getting up. They were either in the villages nearby, maybe in in the city, but a lot of them would have been Galileans from Jesus' zone. They would have been waking up in their tents and and making their morning coffee and whatever you you have if you're a Jewish pilgrim. And, And they would not have been on the other side of the city shouting, crucify him. And so these were these were worshipers, if you like. As Jesus entered, these were worshipers. And later that week, there was rejection from a different group. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But this passage is about worship and rejection, but not in that sense. Let's keep reading and we'll see what I mean. Verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So all that, all the build-up, all the hype, all the go find that donkey, all of that was so that he could have a quick look around and then retrace his steps and go back to where he started. 
Seems a bit of a letdown, doesn't it? Come on, Jesus. I wonder how much the disciples scratched their heads that evening. As they followed him back along the road, kind of trying not to trip on the palm branches that were lying there uh, and, and the odd cloak that hadn't been picked up. I, I wonder if they were kind of looking at each other and scratching their heads and, and saying, what, what happened to save us now? I wonder if that evening as they sat around, probably in Mary and Martha's living room, I wonder if, if one of them said to him, hey, Jesus, that was cool today. Yeah, that was, that was, that was kind of special, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Jesus, did you hear what we were all shouting? You know, the Hosanna one. I started that. Yeah, 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 that was good. Thank you. appreciate that. What about the, um, Jesus, why didn't, I mean, don't want to criticize, but, yeah, what is it? Why, why didn't you, why didn't you do it then? We thought this was it. We thought you were coming to kind of, you know, go and give the Romans a bit of a hiding. And and instead we walk around and then we leave. What's that about? I don't know if they had that conversation. I'd be surprised if they didn't. I wonder if Jesus maybe said something like, I'll show you tomorrow. I'll show you tomorrow what I mean by deliverance. And I'll show you tomorrow what I mean uh, by walking around a temple quietly, surveying everything and then leaving. And the story continues. It's a story about worship and it's a story about rejection. And the interesting thing is that Jesus, faced with a great crowd, doesn't get carried away with that because Jesus isn't primarily concerned with great crowds. But he is concerned with true worship. And so let's look at the next little bit here as we come into uh, the next section from verse 12 down to verse 26. We get a couple of stories combined. Mark is is really into this. He takes two stories and he sort of sandwiches one in the middle of the other. It's like the bread either side of the meat in a sandwich, right? And so the bread either side is pointing to the thing in the middle saying this is the big deal. And so we've got the bread either side and then we've got the meat in the middle. Let's look at it. First of all, the bread, verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Drop down to verse 20. This is now the next morning. So Monday morning, this is now Tuesday morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, isn't that possibly the weirdest thing you've ever read? Jesus walking along, he's, he's hungry, that's not weird, uh, walking along, he sees this tree, goes up to it, anticipating some fruit, finds nothing, curses it, next morning it's absolutely dead, it's just crunchy, there's nothing there, it's withered. Now, A, it's weird because it's a bit miraculous, but it's also a bit weird. Like, why would you do that to a tree? That just seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? Especially if you're into trees or if you are a tree, that's probably really disconcerting to read that. And especially when you read the comment that it was not yet the season for figs. That's really harsh. You know, it's like going up to a tree in January and saying, no apples, you're coming down. I'm going to let Tim go at you with a chainsaw. I mean, it's just harsh. You don't expect fruit the wrong time of year. Now, there's some explanations that, that people try to come up with for this. Maybe there was um, like a pre-fig fig, 
like a sort of sour pre-fruit that was usually there at this time of year. Maybe there's some kind of explanation. I'm not a figster, like whatever figists are. I'm not one of those. I don't know. It could be that purely, and this is probably my best guess, that purely the leaves gave the impression that there was going to be something there. And Jesus wasn't primarily concerned with dealing with his hunger so much as in his hunger saying, right, this is my moment to make a point to the disciples. Because it does make it clear that as he cursed the fig tree, they heard it. It was for their benefit. And so what he was doing, I think, was saying, okay, are they listening? Right. This tree that is full of leaves and looks like it will be full of fruit has no fruit, so I'm cursing it. It's finished. Did they catch that? Yes, they did. And then the next morning, (gasps) it's withered, Jesus. I think the point was for their benefit, and the point was to point us towards what happens in between, what happened next as Jesus entered Jerusalem. We'll come back to the fig tree to see the explanation in a moment, but let's see what happened as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The fig tree was really about the temple. The fig tree was a a picture, if you like, of something that was, was lush and green and impressive looking. Something that you'd expect would be full of fruit. And when it wasn't, Jesus said, you're finished. And then he marched into the temple, a place that was vibrant with people, noise and, uh, and the hubbub. I mean, there's just thousands of people there for the festival. And you'd expect the temple, the centerpiece of Israel's worship, to be a, a place where there was great spiritual fruit and great things going on. And the reality was that it was just show. It was just leaves, but there was no fruit. And it's not that Jesus has got it in for trees. It's that Jesus evaluates worship and is prepared to reject it when it's false. The the temple was supposed to be the place of God's presence. The temple was supposed to be a place where, where the Jewish people would arrive having climbed up those hills from Jericho in the heat of the day. They'd arrive and they'd see the temple before them and it would take their breath away. And then they'd walk into the temple courts and go, oh my goodness, we've got a God who would dwell in our midst. We've got a God who will accept this sacrifice uh, with my shaking hands and this, this sacrifice to say, I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for loving me. Would you deal with my sin? Would you provide a sacrifice? And until then, here's a lamb. It was supposed to be a place where people and God came together. It's supposed to be a place where, where foreigners could come with their foreign accents and say, we've heard it said that the God of Israel is the God who created the whole world and he accepts us as well. Is it true? And they were supposed to receive a warm welcome. Come in to the court of the Gentiles. You're welcome here. And instead, as Jesus walked in, he found a marketplace. Just a mess, just a a noisy, 
business center, like a shopping mall of the first century. What's worse is behind the scenes, we know that this was called a a bazaar, and it was owned and it was run by the father-in-law of the high priest. This was a massive marketing monster of a machine. And from the outside, it looked impressive, but on the inside, it was dead spiritually. You see, Jesus was ready to deal with that. And so he went for it, turning over tables, opening cages, scattering money on the floor and teaching the people. And the people were were impressed. They were responsive, but obviously the businessmen weren't. They didn't like what was going on. The religious leaders were ready to destroy him for this act of petulance. This was the meaning of the fig tree, that God invites us to worship him. He gives us the privilege of worship, but he doesn't take kindly to us treating it as something just kind of unimportant. There are three things specifically that that Jesus critiques here in this passage. And and I I just want to make sure we're clear. The temple and the church are two different things. Okay, the temple was a physical location where people came because God's presence was there. The church is not that. The church is a collection of people in whom is God's presence. We are temples. If we love and know Jesus as our Savior, the Spirit is within us, we are the temple. And yet somehow we can make the link between church and, um, and temple. There's somehow there's a connection there because it's, it's a place of worship. Now, worship for us is not just singing on a Sunday. There's also, uh, throughout the week, our response to God, our response to one another, celebrating as prayers are answered, and as we talk to to each other and and see God at work in each other's lives, and as we go into work each day saying, Lord, I want to serve you in this place today. It's all worship. We live lives of worship, but somehow Sunday, Sunday church is sort of sort of the focus for us, isn't it? This is kind of the, 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 the place where we put our anchor down and we say, yes, I, I can't wait for Sunday because I want to worship God. And there's three things about the worship that was going on in the temple that Jesus was ready to reject. And, and I don't want us to feel kind of beaten down by this, but I do want us to, to hear the warning because it is possible for the local church to be a place of God's blessing, a place of, of vibrant life, and it's possible for a local church to die. It's possible. I read about it in Revelation 2 and 3 where Jesus dictated seven letters to seven churches. And in these letters, he gave warnings. And to some of them, he said, you know, you, you need to repent. You need to get back. You're doing the right things. It all looks good. You know, the, the, the shell is there, but your heart is not in it. You've lost your first love. You've got to repent and come back to to what you had. Otherwise, I am prepared to take the light, the the life away from the church. And over the years, there have been some great churches. We could get Dave going. This would be a good conversation. Talk about church history. Talk to us about some churches that were vibrant but have died. Some denominations that were awesome, uh, just stirring worship. uh, And now they're empty shells. God is prepared to pull the plug. But I think he does that when things go wrong. How do they go wrong? Well, this this passage gives us three uh, clues. First of all, in verse 16, Jesus was stopping people from carrying things through the temple. 
excuse me, oi, are you trying to take that to the other side of town? Well, then go round the outside. You don't cut through here. This is a temple. He was stopping people from taking a shortcut. How do you take a shortcut? I mean, no one cuts through here. It doesn't really go anywhere. I don't think we need to view that literally, like we should never carry things through church, otherwise we're all in trouble. I think what it, what it, if it means anything for us, by extension, it's, we cannot treat worship and, and church and, and God's community as a means to an end for our own benefit. I was in a church where somebody was um, into this pyramid marketing thing. Would you like to come over for a meal? Oh, thank you very much. And after the meal, out comes the flip chart. Here's how it works. If you buy from me, then you can get other people to buy from you. And this is your extra income. Uh, and, and very quickly, people said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's not right. You can't do that in church. You can't take advantage of a church community for the sake of personal profit. That just doesn't seem right. And that's kind of obvious, isn't it? We wouldn't do that. And if you did, we'd ask you to stop because it's just... It just undermines the whole nature of relationship. But actually, even without that, we can sort of fall into the, the same trap of thinking that, that church can be a means to an end. If I go to church, then people will respect me. If I'm involved and busy, then people will, will, will see me as significant. I can get identity from church. Maybe I can make uh, contacts and friends. There's nothing wrong with that. But if that's the end in itself and God is not part of the equation, then it just it seems to be treating it like a sort of a cheap source of benefit rather than the privilege that it's designed to be. So that's the first thing, using church and God's community as a shortcut to personal gain. The second thing that you see is that, that Jesus says, hey, it's written that this is supposed to be a, a house of prayer for the nations. This was supposed to be the place where people with, with funny accents could walk in and, and say, excuse me, I'm new here. Is this the right? Yes, Welcome. And yet the temple had been turned into a machine to make profit for the religious authorities. Instead of prayer, there was business. Instead of uh, a place for people to come and approach God, there was a, a, a noisy bazaar that pushed people away. This was a place of division uh, and separation. This was a place of noise rather than a place of approach to God. And again, by extension, I think we can take a warning from that. When the church becomes a place that is defined by division rather than unity. Something's broken. When the church becomes a place where uh, our color makes a difference or our cultural background makes a difference or our class in society makes a difference. When church becomes a place that's marked by cliques, you're either in or you're out. And did you hear what she said? Oh yeah, but I wouldn't wear that. And all of those kind of things. When church becomes divided and separated, I don't think God's thrilled. It loses what it's supposed to be. A place where all people, all backgrounds, all education, all abilities, all jobs, all whatevers are able to come together and be united with each other in response to God's love. And that's where church is so healthy and so good. And when it becomes a place of division, it, it can become very ugly very quickly. And then there's the, the other side of that, that whoever the others are, they need to be welcomed. I would say that in the 15 months or whatever that we've been going, I, I think we're doing okay. I, I really want to encourage you. That's an English understatement. We're doing great. You're doing great. I've heard people say Trinity is a very welcoming, very warm and friendly uh, community. That's wonderful. 
Let's be careful that we never lose that. Let's never allow it to sort of descend and degenerate into a a club where it's all about my comfort and I don't really care about you and you're not really welcome here anyway unless you're going to play by my rules. Let's never go there because a lot of churches do. A lot of churches end up being places that feel very hard to access, very difficult communities to break into. And we don't want to be like that because God's not like that. And so here Jesus is critiquing the whole temple system because it had become unwelcoming and it had become self-serving. And then thirdly, he says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. This was a place that was supposed to be marked by the holiness of God, and yet there they were, just visually, visibly, in front of everybody, blatantly sinning, uh, making, so, you know, for example, you bring your lamb. Oh, it's a nice lamb. Sorry, it's not qualified. You can't sacrifice that. You need to sacrifice a temple-approved lamb. Uh, Where do I get a temple-approved lamb? Ah, now you should ask. That's a good question right here. We've got holy lambs. Holy lambs, holy lambs. Get your holy lambs. Okay, take this lamb off him. We'll We'll dispose of it for you. Don't you worry. Now you buy this one for 10 shekels or whatever it was. And that lamb goes round the back and gets sold to the next person. That is wrong, Right? That is absolutely inappropriate. And everybody could see it, but there was no way around the system. And I think the problem was not simply there was sin, but it was sin that was denied. It was sin under a veil of pretense, a holiness. That's what we call hypocrisy. And once hypocrisy permeates a church, it does massive damage. Now, please don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that it's not possible for us to sin as a community. The truth is we are all sinners. We all struggle with sin. Every one of us in different ways has struggles with different temptations and different sins. The point is that we don't want to get to the place where we're pretending that everything's fine. Holy church, holy huddle, come on in. No problems here. We don't want to go there. We want to be a place, a community where it's okay to be real. Where it's okay to say, actually, I'm really struggling and I'm struggling in these ways. And you won't be judged and condemned and criticized and kicked out. But you'll be loved and cared for and supported and, and encouraged in the midst of the struggles of life. It's about God's love, isn't it? Isn't worship about the community of God's people who are gripped by God's love and therefore love one another? And yet so easily we put on our Sunday best mask and we go to church and we pretend all is well. The reality is that we may be really struggling. And here at Trinity, we want to be a church community where it's okay to be real, where it's okay to be vulnerable, where it's okay to be struggling. And the hypocrisy is not that there is sin where there should be no sin. Hypocrisy is where there is sin, but we pretend there isn't. Let's not go there. Let's be wary of that because as as a community of God's people becomes a place for me to serve myself, as a community of worshippers becomes a community that rejects outsiders, as a community of God's people uh, starts to have a veneer of plastic and fake holiness, it, it loses its life and its vibrancy. And so Jesus walked into the temple And he was not only ready to turn over the tables, he was ready to declare that this place is finished. And what seemed absolutely impossible to that generation just 40 years later, it was finished. 
The Romans came, it was leveled, it was destroyed, and there hasn't been a Jewish temple in Jerusalem for 2,000 years. Jesus knows what he's talking about. And and it's kind of uh, sobering, isn't it? It's a somber thought to think that here we are, a new local church, and, and there's some sense of vibrancy and some life and some growth and hopefully some health. But to actually look down the road and say it would be possible, God would be willing to pull the plug. If this goes like the temple went, if this becomes fake, if this becomes a community that's racked with selfishness, where God gets pushed out and people get pushed out, and there's a veneer of pseudo-holiness, that's quite a serious thought. So as they're walking out, and then the next morning walking back in, the disciples saw the fig tree, asked Jesus about it, and I I wonder if, if they got what he was saying... I wonder if they were nervous. I wonder if they felt like, goodness me, if, if he's ready to destroy the temple, we're, we're in trouble. I mean, the temple's been there for centuries, you know, generations, and there's this big machine, and there's all the funds, and there's all the resource, and all the people. I mean, surely that, even with all its weaknesses, surely that is, is the real deal. And yet Jesus gives to his disciples, I think, an incredibly encouraging follow-up lesson. The big lesson in this passage, I think, is this. Not that the worshipers reject Jesus five days later. It's that Jesus is prepared to, to, to reject the worship of Jerusalem. Jesus is prepared to push away crowds and instead to pursue genuine worship with a few. He's prepared to leave the crowds behind. He's prepared to leave the temple behind and instead start something with just a handful of weak people with the dodgy accents that come from living up north in Israel. I mean, he took a weak, motley crew and he invited them to true worship. And what does that look like? Look again at the passage. Verse uh, 21, Peter said, look, Rabbi, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. And then he makes a few statements, and these are slightly concerning and intimidating, but they don't need to be. So let me read them, and then we'll explain them. He says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now that's comforting, isn't it? Great. Now Jesus is critiquing our lack of faith because I've never moved a mountain. Actually, I, I think I'm safe in saying that the mountain thing is an exaggeration. Right? And it's a legitimate one. And, and here's why. The, the disciples are probably a bit flustered by the whole destroy the temple stuff. That's kind of major for Jews to watch and, and to process. And now they see this, this fig tree withered and they're going, oh my goodness. Maybe they grasp that the fig tree being finished was a message that the temple was soon to be finished. And, and maybe they're feeling insecure and like, what's going to happen? And what about us? And how does this work? And oh my goodness. And Jesus says, actually, boys, it's really simple. Have faith in God. 
Jesus was, was the person who had faith in God. He, he trusted his father. He knew his father. And, and out of that close connection that he had with his father, he did what he did. And now he's inviting them to also be faithful, to, to be people who trust in God. Faith is simply trust. Faith is, is where you don't just say you trust a stool. You sit on a stool because you trust that it will hold your weight. Faith is not where you say, I believe God could save me, but I'm working to cover my bases. It's where you say, I'm not working to cover my bases because I trust him. He says, I don't need to try to earn anything, so I'm not. I'm just trusting him. Faith is looking toward God in trust. It's simple gaze of our hearts on God saying, I'm going to place all my trust in you, all my eggs in that basket. I'm going to just put everything on you. I'm not going to hold anything back. I've got no contingency plans, no plans B, C, D, or E. It's all you, Lord. I'm trusting you. And Jesus invites his disciples to do just that. Have faith in God. Trust him. And then, by the way, uh, that doesn't limit you in any way. Because if God should lead you to want to move a mountain and it's part of his plan, all you need to do is trust and the mountain will move. Now, you may have noticed in 2,000 years of church history, there hasn't been a whole lot of mountain movement, right? And that's why I say it's an exaggeration. Because I don't think Jesus was passionate about rearranging the topography of the planet at that point. That can come in the future. But I think what he's saying is, don't be intimidated. Just trust God. True worship is born out of simple trust. Just trust him. And if, if you need to move a mountain or overturn an empire or, or stop slavery or whatever, just trust God and he'll, he'll help you. He'll give you what you trust him for. And we can do amazing things in the world, not because of us, but because of him. True worshipers just trust God. And they pray. To come to him in prayer. And prayer becomes the pulse of a community of true worshippers. And then as they, they worship him and trust him in the simplicity of that, then it, his character overflows in their relationships with each other and they forgive one another. When there's sin and when, when people say things and do things and there's awkwardness and, and it kind of things break down and people let you down and people don't do what you thought they said they would or what they, you thought they should have said they would and, and things don't go quite right, then you forgive one another because that's what it looks like to be a community of people that are gripped by the love of God. And I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples here is, you know what? Don't worry about the system that is the temple. Just trust God. I'm not worried about the crowds. I'm not trying to build up some great hype machine with all of the weaknesses. I'm simply inviting you into what I have, which is an intimate, close relationship with my Father. Pray to Him. Trust Him. Forgive one another. Let your worship be marked with a simplicity and a beauty that in itself will be like a diamond on the black velvet of this world. Just think about that as we draw this to a close. What, what is true worship about? It's the way we started. It's like Bartimaeus. When we get to see Jesus clearly, and then we follow hard after him, we're stirred and we, we pursue him, trusting God, praying, forgiving, following him, carrying our cross, all the things we've seen is actually within reach for every one of us. And that's the invitation. God invites each of us to become true worshipers. He's not worried about crowds, but he loves people. He's not worried about great numbers, but 
He wants to draw people to know and enjoy His Father. And the privilege that is ours is not to build a machine that goes corrupt from the inside out like the Jerusalem temple. The privilege that we have is to be the temple, to be worshipers. Simple, instant, direct access to God at any moment, at any time, on the train, at work, at home, lying on your pillow. When you wake up in the middle of the night, you can just trust Him. And that's the invitation He gives us. It's very simple, but it's beautiful. Now, we've seen a warning. The warning is that God's willing to pull the plug on this church. And if, we're, uh, if we drift and we keep going the wrong way and we, we leave God out of it and we leave each other out, eventually he'll pull the plug. But the invitation is actually very warm and very simple. Just trust. Just love him. And then that life that is changed in community, that can grow. And that can make a real difference in this world.